Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. The, uh, the notes, which may look somewhat familiar uh, to last week's, will be in the bulletin. Um, I'd like to begin this morning by reading our passage. We only got halfway through the 14 verses last week. I was overly ambitious in what I attempted to cover. And so we'll finish that off this morning. Preparing the way of the Lord, Luke chapter 3, one through 14. If you remember, we've spent 13 weeks in the first two chapters of Luke, the prologue setting the stage, giving the backstory, giving the credentials, as it were, for the last and greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in Luke chapter 3, Luke, as we dive in, the action is already happening. John is on the scene. John is at work. He is doing ministry. Also, before I read the first 14 verses, I am very grateful for the many of you who corrected me that it is not tetriarch, but tetrarch. Thank you. (laughs) The blessing became lesser and lesser as multiple people. But I am very loved by a body that wants to make sure that I am speaking God's word accurately, and that is as as it should be. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iaturia, and Traconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths Straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized by him and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats, or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It's a remarkable passage. We, we looked at the first half last week, and if you remember the way, we, the way we framed this is that in the first 
six verses, we've got John's ministry of repentance. Um, what, what Luke did was he gave us the historical context. He told us when this took place. This isn't a fairy tale. He doesn't say many years ago where there once was a man. He's giving us precise historical accuracy. He's inviting Theophilus to whom he is writing to verify, to investigate. That's part of the purpose of giving that type of detail. A little harder for us, 2,000 years removed, but clearly Luke is inviting his first century readers to investigate, to verify. And then we're told what John was doing. What, what was John doing? What was he about? What was the summary of his ministry? And, and we've got that in verse Three, after the word of God came to him, he went into all the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is why he's called John the Baptist or John the Immerser because baptize is simply transliterating the Greek, which means to dip, dunk, or immerse. He was going about proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That is the center of his ministry. All four Gospels agree on that point. And then we got a... a, a, a quotation from Isaiah, helping make it clear this is a fulfillment of what was promised to come. This should not be unexpected. He, he is fulfilling Scripture, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So for review, because these terms are significant and under some dispute, we came up with a definition of repentance. We'll start there. What does it mean to repent? What is repentance? What is John proclaiming? Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing of it, and a commitment to forsake it. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a commitment to forsake it. And this morning, we'll see as he interacts, we go from his ministry to his message, as he actually talks to individual people, I think you'll see clearly that that is an accurate definition. And the second point, probably what took most of our time last week, but I'm happy to do it because I think it is essential and critical to understand, is that repentance from sin is essential. It is essential. It is necessary for our salvation. When God sends a prophet to prepare people to receive his son, what message does that prophet proclaim? He could have proclaimed a lot of messages. Read your Bible. He could have gone about in the wilderness proclaiming, read your Bible. He could have gone out in the wilderness. God loves you. That's absolutely true. When God sends a prophet to prepare people to receive his son, and we see this pattern again and again in Scripture, the way you prepare, the way a person is prepared, or the way a heart is prepared is conviction for sin, sorrow for sin, a desire to leave sin. So that when Jesus comes along and says, all you who are weak and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness because John was already sent out among them, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for sin. And then we talked somewhat about how this can be confusing because the question is, does the gospel call today require this same repentance? And I argued, um, absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. That, that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. That we turn from something to something. We, we were born and we love and we worship our sin and we give our life to our sin. And then Jesus comes along and we turn to him and we give our life to him and we worship him. And no man can serve two masters. And I dealt with some of the objections last week. I, I came up with one more I want to deal with. Um, some respond to this issue 
of, of the question of is, is repentance from sin essential for salvation by theorizing that perhaps, perhaps there's sort of a two-level Christianity that well, you can be saved by accepting, receiving Jesus, and then you become a disciple later on, and, and perhaps some of these passages that I've been looking at are really issues of discipleship. I'd like to deal with that briefly. Um, we dealt with three objections last week, just one more. Please turn to Luke 9. I want Luke himself to answer this. And I want you to see from our Lord's mouth the necessity of repentance. I think you can understand why this is critical. If, If we don't call people in calling them to faith in Jesus, to call them to be willing to count the cost and turn from their sin, we will fill the church with false converts. We will give false assurance People will pray a prayer, they'll, they'll walk an aisle, they'll go back to living however they see fit with a false confidence. Listen to Jesus, our Lord, in Luke 9. He said to all, verse 23, Luke 9, 23, he didn't say to some, he didn't just say to his disciples, he didn't just say to those who'd already accepted him, he said to all, if anyone, notice the universal inclusive language here, this is what Jesus said to everyone, about anyone. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Understand at this point, the cross has no Christian connections. The cross is not a piece of jewelry. The cross is a torture device used to kill the worst criminals. So when Jesus says, pick up your cross, now we've, we've turned, your cross can be, you know, your your boss at work, your cross can be, you know, um, whatever. The cross here means one thing, a, a torturous means of killing the scum of the earth. Pick up the cross and follow me. There's a pretty clear demand. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Get this. Jesus is emphatic that the stakes are not. Do you want to just be a saved Christian who's not a disciple? The stakes are life and death. Those people who say that's too hard, I don't want to pick up a cross. I don't want to follow someone. I just want to be forgiven. Those people will lose their life. They will lose their soul. Jesus is emphatic on the point. Do not take my word for this. Listen to our Savior. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me for whoever universal inclusive, would save his life, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Repentance from sin is essential. It is essential. It is part of the same act in turning from something to something. Like I said last week, there's a blue, um, blue little essay next to the mailboxes. The elders distributed that in 2012. It's a, it's a reprinting of something by Wayne Grudem. If this is an issue that you want to work more through, by all means, that'd be a good place to start. One other reason, and again, I belabor this point. I, I t- shared some of my own story. I was one of those people who thought that I could ask Jesus into my heart and then go serve and worship other gods and other things. 
I, I was one of those people who was deceived into thinking that faith was just sort of mental assent. Do I think these things are true? Sure, I do. Why not? Do I want Jesus to forgive me freely? Sure. Who doesn't want a free gift? And salvation is a free gift. There is no cost to salvation. There is also no cost to joining the Marines or the Air Force. I'd encourage you to talk to Jared Brewer, who is visiting us, and ask him if, in one sense, he had to count a cost before he joined up. And I want to turn to Ezekiel 14, make one last point to try to make this clearly. I want to hopefully resolve the matter in your minds, why this is essential. If, if we're debating this issue, if we're debating, is repentance from sin necessary for salvation? If a person were to say, no, it's not, then we must acknowledge, if that is the case, that unrepentant people can be saved. If repentance from sin is not necessary, then unrepentant people can and will be saved. The problem is the Bible has two metaphors used to describe sin. One of them is the language of the law court. Sin, according to 1 John, is lawlessness. And and that legal metaphor we're familiar with, Paul uses that extensively in Romans. There's another metaphor for sin, and that is idolatry. That's the language of covenantal unfaithfulness. And what the Bible makes clear is those who worship and serve sin worship and serve idols. And so the question is, can someone worship and serve the living God while worshiping and serving idols? And Ezekiel 14 is the only passage I'm aware of in Scripture that uses a phrase we talk about all the time, idols of the heart. I want to read it, and I want you to resolve the issue. Can somebody be reconciled with God while worshiping idols in their heart? Can an unrepentant person come to saving faith in their unrepentance? Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Now this, pause, this looks good. Ezekiel is God's prophet in Babylon. And elders, they come and they sit respectfully before him. This is looking good. Perhaps they're convicted. Perhaps they finally want to obey God. Remember, they're in exile because they didn't listen to God. But the word of the Lord comes and warns him, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any, universal, inclusive, any of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from your abominations. You can't turn to God without turning away from something. For anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart. Notice, worshiping an idol necessarily involves separating yourself from the living God. Anyone of the house of Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face. We're not talking about the sin we struggle with. We're not talking about the sins that we, when we see them, we, we confess and we turn from them. We're talking about taking something and loving it and holding it close to you 
and saying, I value this more than I value God. I love this. This is more important to me than Jesus. This is more important to me than the living God. Whatever it is, your bottle, the websites you like to go to, whatever it is that you love more, and you, you truly, I love this. This is my God. Not, I want help casting this off, and it keeps coming back. That, that's a Christian. That's repentance. I don't want to do this. It keeps sticking to me. The person who looks at it says, no, no, I love this. I will serve this. That's idolatry. Listen to what God says. I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man. I'll make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Can an unrepentant person be saved? Can they have peace with God? Because that is the gospel, being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Do these people sound like they have peace with God? Do these people sound like the wrath of God is not abiding over them? No, of course not. I mean, at his heart, at his heart, it's an absurdity that someone could come to God and say, please forgive me, but I absolutely resent, resist, and deny your right to tell me what to do. I don't like the fact that you've got expectations. I don't like what you want me to do. I'm unrepentant. But I'll, I'll accept the free gift of salvation, please. I mean, it's, it is an utter absurdity. And well-intentioned people wanting to, and this is a good intention, wanting to not make the gospel difficult, wanting to not make out of the fence, sadly, results in people like me who get a false assurance, and you can become inoculated to the gospel. Oh, no, yeah, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was four. Yeah, yeah. You know, that story of me last week, vomiting from drinking too much at a keg party at UNH. No, no, I'm a Christian. I'm just a bad one. Just a bad one. That was a category for me. I thought that was a valid way to live. And I was wrong. So, now we move into John's message of repentance. That's, that's review. I'm trying to put the final nail in closing this issue shut. And what do we learn in Luke 3? What do we learn about repentance and John's message Point one, saving repentance is sincere. Saving repentance is sincere. They come out to John. I mean, think about it. They take a journey. They don't have cars. They come out into the wilderness, into the hot desert. Tundra, wasteland. And John rebukes them. You brood of vipers. And then we get the basis of his rebuke. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John questions the sincerity of their repentance because John is able to see the fruit of their life. It must be motivated, point A, by a godly sorrow. Now we know from reading Luke and other Gospels that as John's popularity grew, the Pharisees said, all of Israel is going out to him. And there's a, there's a level at which Christianity... Following God is culturally cool. It's a thing to do. We're quickly moving out of it in our culture, but maybe for some of you who are older, you, you know that... I mean, just take something as simple as politics. No, no politician yet has any chance of running on a platform as an atheist. There's a sense in which, at least culturally, the, the culture's not ready for that yet. So in the, regardless of what they believe, they've got to profess some faith in something because there's a sense in that cultural holdover in our culture... That this was part of the culture, and, and, and people understood that decent people were religious. Now, that has its own baggage that's biting us as well. I won't 
That's another message for another time. The point being, there's a point at which where enough people are doing it that some insincere people say, oh, we'll go out and see what's going on in the wilderness. We'll go out too. Sure, you know, we love God. We'll go. We'll go. And they come out. And they make the journey. And John blasts them in love. You look at that, you think, that isn't very loving. When somebody is self-deceived, when somebody, and these people think they're doing good. They think they're going out to see God's prophet. They think they're, they're going out to do something religious. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to help wake them up. Jesus does the same thing. We'll see, we'll see this later in Luke. You brood of vipers who warns you to flee the wrath to come. God, it must be motivated, point A, by godly sorrow. And that's a phrase found in 2 Corinthians 7. And, and Listen to this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to what? It leads to salvation. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourself innocent in the matter. See, people can be sorry for their sin for a lot of different reasons. It's very easy to be sorry for the consequences. People have made poor decisions, their families fall apart. People make sinful decisions, their, their careers fall apart. You can be sorry. Judas was very sorry. Very, very sorry. The Scripture calls him the son of perdition. And so sorry isn't significant. It's, it's why a person is sorry. He calls him a brood of vipers who flees you to war to from the wrath to come. And that question, who, who, who warned you to flee the wrath to come, is reminiscent of another question that God asked back in Genesis 3. Remember when the man and the woman were hiding and they said, we were naked, so we hid? Who, who told you you were naked? And the point of such questions is to question the motivation of somebody. Adam, Adam in, in Genesis 3 is not concerned, first and foremost, with, with having offended a holy God. I mean, he's not even thinking properly. He somehow thinks, we can just get some leaves together, we'll be okay. And here, these people are, are, are doing apparently the right thing, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. What, what John is, in effect, saying is, why are you coming forward to be baptized? And so we see that this godly sorrow, point I here, we must recognize God's just wrath at sin. God's just Wrath at sin. Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Wrath is coming. But wrath is coming for our sin. We're storing it up if we're not in Christ. And repentance is called for. Jesus has the same message if you turn over to Luke 13. This is a point Jesus tries to make in Luke 13. There were some present, verse 1, at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So there were some Galileans who suffered horribly. Pilate not only had them killed, but had their blood mixed with the sacrifices. It's a disgrace. It's disgusting. Surely they must have been some really bad people. Do you think they were worse sinners than... You all, Jesus says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. There's a tower, and it collapsed and killed 18 people. Wow, they must have really done something to anger God. Nope. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's the point? We're all terrible sinners. We like to think of ourselves as relatively decent people, and as long as there's somebody who's more worse than us, that's why I think Hitler has served such a purpose for people, because no matter how bad you are, you're not Hitler, and as long as you're not Hitler, you can feel that you're kind of together, and then there are some really bad people like Hitler, and they'll probably get judged, but not me. Jesus and John are calling on people to recognize, calling on us to recognize, no, God justly If God gave me what I deserved, he would cast me in hell, and he would have done it long, long ago. If I got justice, not grace, God would cast me in hell, his wrath would pour out on me, and he would have done it long ago. That's justice. And and repentance is a recognition of that. It's not making excuses for yourself. It's not explaining things away. It's recognizing there's wrath and I deserve it. It's also recognizing, according to John, that it is imminent. Recognizing God's wrath is imminent. It's notion of fleeing. It's, It's coming swiftly. At any moment, we could be called to give an account. Jesus also teaches on this in Luke. Turn to Luke 12. The the notes, I want you to see the notes that John the Baptist hits in his message are notes that Jesus hits in his. And in, in Luke 12, this notion of imminent judgment and living in light of imminent judgment. There's wrath that's coming. Flee while you can. Luke 12, 16. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. John is is warning these people. There's a wrath and it is coming. Most people who die don't plan on dying. Sometimes through disease, sometimes through old age, we can see it coming. but, But I suspect for most and many, death comes as a surprise. There are so many things we plan on getting around to. Maybe you planned on getting around to figuring out who Jesus is, what the Bible says. There's wrath and it's coming. Flee. Flee while you can. There's a, there's a pardon. There's an offer of forgiveness and it's here in Jesus Christ. Flee the wrath to come. Recognize God's imminent wrath at sin. Point B, it must be done in utter, utter dependence of God's grace. The other thing John rebukes is, is this notion that I've got, you've got some cred with God. The, the Jews of John's day were very, very proud of their, their lineage, of their parenthood. They are, after all, physical descendants of Abraham, the one who received the promise from God. Surely that gave them a leg up on other peoples. Surely because they are sons of Abraham, they can't be that bad. Saving repentance doesn't come saying, 
negotiating with God. Saving repentance doesn't say, well, I've done these bad things, but I've got these good things. I've done these bad things, but hey, don't forget who my parents are. Saving repentance is turn to Luke 18. Again, trying to highlight that Jesus teaches the same things about repentance that John does. Luke 18, verse 9. I'll start in, yeah, verse 9. He also told this parable to those who trusted in themselves, which is another way of saying self-righteous. Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. In fact, you can all, some, there's a footnote here. And some, some translations say he prayed to himself. It's a possible reading. Here's how he prayed. God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The good news is you can be forgiven. The good news is there is a salvation. We saw earlier that all flesh can see, Jew and Gentile alike. You've got to come empty-handed. You've got to come recognizing your utter dependence on God's grace. He doesn't owe it to you. You don't have any cred with him. You don't have any chips to spend. All of our good deeds are like medical waste, according to Isaiah. Don't, don't come thinking you've got some leg up with God. Don't come thinking he owes you one. It's, it's hard to humble yourself, but if you will humble yourself, if you will just cry out, God, be merciful to me. Jesus, remember me, like the thief on the cross. Everywhere and always in Scripture, God responds to that with grace and forgiveness must be done in utter dependence on God's grace. And point C, it must result in good works. It must result in good works. It's interesting that, that John calls them out. And, and in our day and age where religion is more and more privatized and inward only, you can imagine their response might be something like this. Don't judge my heart. You don't know my motives. How, how can you know whether I'm repentant or not? You can imagine them saying that. John, and this gets back to what we talked about last week and even in the ABF last week, John assumes the implicit connection between what they believe and what they do. How is John able to say, you brood of vipers, as opposed to, welcome, welcome, you who've heard God's message? Because John is aware of their fruit, and based on their fruit and their deeds, he can call them a brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now again, I told you last week how I had sort of found, formed this version of Christianity where I thought I believed these things. I thought I believed the gospel. And I, as far back as I can reach in my memory, I've had an orthodox understanding of the facts of the gospel. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's Son of God. He's one person, fully God, fully human. He lived a sinless life on my behalf, on the cross. God pours out His wrath on Him instead of on me. He takes my punishment. 
He lives my life so that I can be credited with his life, so that my sins can be. And he dies as a sacrifice and atonement on the third day, rose again. And that by belief in his name, we can be saved. All that I understood and could have probably clearly articulated to you when I was the age of my son Abner. And yet, James tells us the demons believe and tremble. Just because you know something's true doesn't mean you love it, doesn't mean you've given yourself to it. And John here makes the connection that what you believe and what you do will be inexplicably linked. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Turn to Matthew 7. Now, my story, how God graciously brought me to repentance and faith, is he, he... he let my sin have more and more dominion over me. So even as an unbeliever with unbelieving friends, they began to see based on how much I was drinking and the life I was living, man, Jeremy's got some problems. And in the back of my mind, this was gnawing away. I, I recognized the dissonance. I recognized the tension. That, that I think I'm a Christian. I don't read my Bible. I don't go to church. I don't care about my sin. I do what I want. How does that really work? And somewhere in the summer of 1999, I decided to get to the bottom of it. I became more and more afraid of judgment, more and more afraid of giving an account to God. I did not know then what I know now, that in John 15 and 16, Jesus says, the initial ministry of the Holy Spirit working outwardly on hearts of men is that when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that was what the Holy Spirit working from the outside was doing on me, and it drove me to this book. And I began to read. At the same time, I had a friend of mine named Chris. And Chris, I sometimes joke that I'm Romans 1, he's Romans 2. He was a very moral guy, but he later confessed a very self-righteous moral guy. He was the good guy. He was my driver, getting me to and from parties. He was the sober friend that you, everyone loves, who who's gives himself to the dissipation that I gave myself to. And, and he had some of a similar upbringing, and even on some occasions when I'd question whether I was a Christian or not, he'd come along and say, now, Jeremy, we're saved by faith, not by works, so, so what are you beating yourself up for? You asked Jesus into your heart. You, you prayed the prayer. He lived about a block away from me. And, and so when I told him, I said, Chris, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, man. I don't think I'm, I don't know. I've got to get to the bottom of this. And I start reading my Bible, and he's, okay, he's interested. And I, I remember distinctly walking over to his house one night after reading Matthew 7. And I put it down in front of him. I said, Chris, what, what, what do you make of this? And we read Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. John the Baptist recognized them by their fruit, did he not? Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can the diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By the way, do you notice the the similarity here between what Jesus says and what John says? The axe is laid to the root. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. They're preaching the same message. John's call to repentance is Jesus' call to repentance. Now look at verse 21. This has got to be one of the most frightful things to consider. It's the day of judgment. People are standing before the risen Christ. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I, and I know this is a passage that probably troubles many of you because Jesus is so focused here on works, isn't he? You workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought we're saved by faith apart from works. We absolutely are. But if what we believe is always evidenced by what we do, then I think this makes sense. These people are self-deceived. They think when they see Jesus, they're going to get open arms. They think they're going to be invited in, and they are cast away to outer darkness. And I don't think they're bluffing. I don't think they're lying. I think this comes as a shock to them. And so Jesus, rather than simply declaring, you didn't have faith, he shows them how they should have known they had faith because of the lives they lived. Because if what you believe will always evidence itself in what you do, then you can work that backwards, point to what people are doing, and we can reason to what they believed. How, do, how does Jesus prove he never knew them? He points them to the lives they lived. That's the evidence. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Every good tree bears good fruit. It's not that their works would save them. Repentance and faith saves. John distinguishes that. You need to repent. And then, then he distinguishes between the acts that accompany true repentance, the lives that are lived. So I showed this to my friend Chris, and I said, Chris, what's, what's, what's these people's problem? And his jaw dropped, and he's, he's hoping to move out here. Um, you can talk to him, but... He describes that as the most frightening day of his life. And he looks at me and he goes, Jeremy, that's us. I said, no, it's not, Chris. If this is the appeals line, we are half a mile or so behind them. They've got ministry. They've got service. You know, for our purposes, they helped out in Awana. They went to church. These are religious people. I didn't have any of that. If this is the appeals line, I'm, I'm a mile or two back. That was when God began to teach me and show me that the faith without works is dead, that what we believe will always, always bear fruit. Now, yeah, we'll struggle with sin, and when we see it, we'll confess it, and we'll get back in the light. And of course, we're going to struggle to the day we die with putting to death the flesh. But we are people who want, I hope, to please the risen Lord. We are people who want and hunger and thirst, at least in part, for righteousness. Where people say, will you help me obey? Will you give me the strength to obey? Will you give me the strength to follow you? I want to be like Jesus. It's just hard. Now, that's one thing. That's, that's, that, that's, that's my life. It's my life. But make no mistake, as like I did, you think you can believe one thing and give your life wholly to another. It must result in good works. By the way, we looked at this last week, but the Apostle Paul was quite comfortable quoting John the Baptist on this point. He said in Acts 26, 20, summarizing his ministry to Felix, I declared first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, to all the Gentiles, they should repent 
and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with repentance. How does the Apostle Paul summarize his new covenant ministry? I went everywhere, Jews and Greeks, told them they needed to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance towards God. Quite comfortable quoting the Baptist. Okay, point two. We will not make this a three-part series. Saving repentance is practical. Saving repentance is practical. So we've seen what it isn't. It's not insincere. It's not simply going along with the crowd. It's not trusting in oneself. It's a recognition that God is justly angry. It's a recognition that judgment is coming. It comes empty-handed. It comes bankrupt before God. And it will result in good works. Repentance itself is not a work. It will bear fruit. And John separates between the repentance and the deeds that follow. It's practical. It's practical. The crowd is now convicted. And so they turn to him. And much like the people in Acts 2 turn to Peter, what shall we do? John starts to spell it out for them. So you've talked about repentance and the sorrow or renouncing. Here's where it gets really practical. What does that mean? It, it means humility and love should take place in your heart rather than love for sin. It means share your excesses with those in needs. It's practical. You want to know if you're repentant? It's not a matter of, well, I felt really, really bad. I remind you, so did Judas. You want to know if you're repentant? How willing are you to share your excesses with others in need? How important do you think you are? I need these things. If God's given you more than you need, you should be willing to share with those who don't. Because they bear God's image. Because after all, God was gracious to you and he forgave your debt, which is so much greater. There's a practical example. Generosity. Or how's it about honesty and integrity as the tax collectors come up? Now these are people who had the right and the ability, the strength, the power to, to exhort and, and rob people. They'd buy a tax collecting franchise and and they would have to give a certain amount to Caesar, but anything they were able to raise above and beyond that got to be theirs. And so these men were thieves, extortioners. Jesus simply tells them, hey, don't lie or cheat others. Only, only take what you have a right to take. How willing are you to take advantage of your fellow man? There's a good sign if you're repentant, repentant heart. Are you looking for what gets you the most for you? Looking out for number one? Or like Philippians says, you don't look out only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. As about justice and meekness? Soldiers come to him, want to be baptized. What should we do? Don't extort money by threats or false accusation. Don't threaten people. You person given to anger, you person given to wrath, repentant heart should... should tear that away. Shouldn't be working on that. The person who, who accuses, that's, that's not repentance either. John tells the soldiers, look, your, your potential abuse of your responsibilities, you can, you can accuse people and get them arrested, get them killed. Don't do that falsely. Don't extort or threaten. And then the last one is just so practical. I mean, this, this affects all of us. How, how content are you with your situation in life? Who here... I'll, who here doesn't from time to time get tempted to grumble about their pay? Who here doesn't like to grumble about their boss or, or what they deserve or the promotion they get passed over for? 
This is really practical stuff. If you grasp, then even slightly grasp the weight of your sin and what God through His grace and through His Son has given to you and how what you deserve did not come your way and you got what you did not deserve, <laughs> you're not going to be bitter because you get ripped off 25 cents an hour. You're not. If you are, if you're grumbling about how people owe you things, then you're much more sounding like the guy who got forgiven $500,000 who's strangling the guy who owes him twenty. And he's not the good guy in the story. It's practical. It, it, it talks about bearing fruit in your life. You know, ask God what fruit you should be bearing. Ask, ask God where he's got his thumb on in your life. These are just some examples we could give more. It's, if it doesn't work itself out into everyday space-time, if it just stays a repentance that's conceptual, and when you think about this, you feel really bad and humble, watch out. Press it through. Okay, we got 10 minutes. Quickly. What do you do? It's not in the text here, but I thought we got we to address this because some of you may be sitting here and you, and you recognize the truthfulness of what I'm saying, but your heart doesn't respond. Probably one of the most discouraging conversations I ever had was with a childhood friend who looked at me and said, we were talking about the life he was living where he was at. He looked at me, he's in New Hampshire, and he goes, Jeremy, I know what you're saying is right, and I know that how I'm living is wrong. I just don't care. It's a terrifying place to be. So what do you do if you're sitting here right now? You know there's sin in your life. You know there's idols. For whatever reason, your heart is dull, hard. What do you do? Six quick steps practically to help. How, how, do, you, how do you repent? How do you do this? Have I just laid a heavy yoke on you all? Let's, let's just work through this. First, know that repentance, a repentant heart, is always your greatest need. It's always your greatest need. Whatever problems you think you're facing, medical problems, employment problems, family problems, they pale in comparison with the possibility that God is your enemy. Because if God is your enemy, there is no place to hide. There is no way to call him off. There is no way to escape. And there's a free offer of peace, forgiveness. It's always your greatest need. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You want to know what God will never despise, what God will never be angry at, what God will never cast away? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's always your greatest need. Number two, Kevin Wenk, thankfully, brought this up last week. Know that repentance is a gift of God. And that's what makes this tough. You desperately need it. You can't manufacture it on your own. It is a gift of God. Quickly, Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from sin. Or listen to what the early church in Acts 11 said as Peter comes to them and tells them about the first Gentile converts, Cornelius and his household. How do they interpret it? Do they say, wow, then Cornelius, good for him, he repented. No, Acts 11, when they heard these things, they fell silent, they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted the repentance that leads to life. The repentance that leads to life God has granted. 
Or 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. When you go correct somebody, when you you try to lovingly instruct somebody, God says, hey, I'll worry about whether they listen. You worry about not being a jerk, being kind, being patient. If perhaps God will grant them repentance. It's a gift of God. You can't manufacture it. I mean, how, how wonderful would it be if we could just flip a switch and stop loving the praise of man? For those of you who have ever struggled with a, with a chemical issue, how, how wonderful would it be to just decide, I'm just going to repent of craving nicotine or alcohol. I'm just going to flip a switch. It's, my heart hates it now. Isn't that easy? Okay. So we desperately need it. It's a gift of God. What now? Well, the scriptures show us things we can do to call on and cultivate repentance. Ultimately, it's God who has to make it grow. God gives the increase, but we can do certain things. One of the things we can do, number three, is saturate your mind with the scriptures. Saturate your mind with the scriptures. Why? Because when we don't see our sin as we ought, we don't get convicted. If you're not repentant of your sin, trust me, you don't see your sin as it is. And we've got all sorts of vocabulary to minimize our sin. I wasn't angry. I was snippy, right? I didn't tell a lie. I just stretched the truth. I was a little evasive, right? Um, We didn't have a fight. We had a little quarrel, lover's tiff. We got all sorts of ways that we minimize our sin. Then we start factoring in all the excuses we make for our sin, and then it's reasonable, after all, if, if you'd had this, the bad night's sleep that I had, you would have probably acted far worse, and on and on and on. Let me read God's word, and it strips us bare. And like a light shining in a dark place, it exposes reality of sin. Let me read that a proud heart is an abomination to God. You're like, oh, okay, I guess it's not a small problem after all. Saturate your mind in the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable to teach and for reproof. It can show me what's true and it can call my heart to repentance. Get in God's word. If you're aware of sin that you are not taking seriously, if your heart is dull, certainly don't fake it. I'll pretend I'm repentant. John calls those people out. But get in God's word. Study the issue. Start speaking about it like God speaks about it. Number four. Confess your sin to others in the body. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. One of the greatest powers that the devil has in making sin have sway over us is to isolate ourselves. People who are struggling with things don't want others to know. Well, why? Because I'm afraid you're going to hate me. If you, I'm afraid that if you knew what was going on in my mind and in my heart yesterday, you'd throw rocks at me. So consequently... I got no one praying for me. I got no one encouraging me. James, James says, humble yourself. Confess your sins to another. Pray for one another. So go to somebody and say, you know what? I've been convicted that I'm not serving my wife like I ought, but the bottom line is I keep getting home from work and I just don't care. My heart is getting dull. Would you pray for me? Would you exhort me? Would you ask me how that's going? That's a way to work on a hard heart. Five, plead with the Lord to soften your heart. 
Plead with the Lord to soften your heart. And this is the pattern we have in Scripture. Psalm 51. We already read some of it. 51.10. David, create me a clean heart, O God. I can't do it myself. God, would you create me a clean heart and renew my spirit? Psalm 86.11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. O Lord, would you, would you work in my heart so that I fear you? Because right now I don't. I fear these people more than I fear you. So, Lord, would you work in my heart to make me fear you, please? Or Psalm 119. Now listen to verse 36 compared to verse 112. Psalm 119, 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And then 80 verses later, he has the audacity to say, I incline my heart to perform your statutes. And I'm thinking, dude, I read what you said. No, you didn't. You asked God to do it. And then as I was chewing on that, okay, which one is it? Is the psalmist asking God to incline his heart, or is he saying, I did it? It clicked. How does one incline their heart to God's word and his statutes? You do it by asking God to do it. Eighty verses earlier, he asked God to incline his heart. So at verse 112, he can say, I did it. I asked God to do it. That's the, so how do you repent? You get on your knees and you ask God to work on your heart. That's how you repent. Or verse 133, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Psalm 141.4, do not let my heart incline to any evil. God, don't let my heart incline to evil, please. Do you see again and again in Scripture, the psalmist recognized, I recognize, I am powerless to make my heart not love what it loves. I am powerless to make my heart love something it doesn't love. But that doesn't mean there's nothing I can do. I can get before God's word. I can plead with God. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. I'm not getting up off this floor until you work in my heart, Lord. And be persistent, number six. Be persistent. Ask, seek, and knock. I'm going to call the worship team up. As we do, I'm just going to read this passage in Luke. So if the worship team would come up. Luke 11. Jesus, again, teaching this. Nine to 13. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. If, friend, if your heart is cold and dull and hard, if you'll, if you'll humble yourself, get in his word, get on your knees and ask God to work in your heart, he, he will answer you. He will. If you know this stuff is true, but you just don't care, that's a frightening place to be. The most dangerous place you can be is thinking about repenting. Recognize your need. Recognize only God can answer your need. Saturate your mind with scriptures. Talk to a brother or sister. Confess where you're at. Plead with the Lord. Be persistent. Now this closing song, I love the chorus. Broken spirit and a contrite heart. Lord, my heart is prone to wander prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Let's sing.